Welcome to Life of the School, episode 18. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode on Life of the School, I'd like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher from somewhere around the country and find out how they get into teaching, uh, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Ryan Reardon. Ryan is an IB biology and IB environmental science instructor at Jefferson County International Baccalaureate School, JCIB, in Birmingham, Alabama. Ryan is a nationally recognized biology teacher who fiercely advocates for STEM education. In 2016, Ryan was presented the Presidential Award for Excellence in Mathematics and Science Teaching. Ryan has been interviewed on NPR's All Things Considered about the adoption of the new Alabama science standards in 2015. Ryan has consulted with a variety of organizations providing resources to science classrooms. This includes working with HHMI Biointeractive as a reviewer of classroom materials, including a collection of activities on surveying elephant populations. Ryan holds a BA in biology from Rhodes College and an MS in biology from the University of Alabama. He's also a nationally board-certified teacher in adolescent and young adult science education with a concentration in biology. You can follow Ryan's musings about biology and teaching and life in general on Twitter at TRG underscore Ryan Reardon. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks. So, uh, yeah, you became immediately thrown on my list when I was talking to Paul two months ago. And I don't, yeah. I don't think he did it on air, but like, I think it was like as soon as we were done, he's like, oh, you got to get Ryan Reardon on. Um, like that was what his, uh, his like first words, like after, you know, at some point when I was talking about, you know, upcoming episodes or something like that, he was like, Oh, Ryan, you got to talk to Ryan. I was like, all right, I'll talk to Ryan. Right. Right. So I'm going to jump right into it on the first question, um, and ask, uh, how did you become a science teacher? What, what got you into the classroom? That's it. That's a great question. I, I actually, I'm really lucky. I came at this from an informal background. So I was, God, I was I guess the, the backup backup, I finished my master's thesis and I was presenting at the National Association of, uh, it was actually the North American Benthological Society, NAVS. So it was a stream ecology meeting. That's what, that was my training. And I presented my master's research and I was going to a bunch of other talks and meeting folks. And, you know, I remember looking around going, you know what, there are 800 people here and 799 of them care more about this than I do. You know, they, I love stream ecology, but they love it more. There's I don't have a question for my PhD. I'm just not that interested in it. So, uh, which it, it sounds, it's, it, that's not a Debbie Downer thing. It's, it's not negative. It's just like, I kind of knew I was sort of out of ideas at the time and ready for something. I had, uh, I, I was a, on a graduate assistantship and a teaching assistantship at, at university of Alabama. And I, I loved being in the classroom. I loved it. Loved it. I taught a gen bio as a, as a, as a, a TA and I taught anatomy and physiology as a TA. And I even got to, work with some of the upper level classes in stream ecology and uh, hydrology, just enjoyed working with people and enjoyed teaching. And uh, as I was coming out of grad school, I applied to every community college and college in, in Tuscaloosa and Birmingham looking for adjunct work. And I picked up adjunct work pretty quickly, taught gen bio at a community college right out of, right out of grad school and then went and played music for a couple of years. And when that started to get a bit, uh, the economics didn't really work out. Let me just put it that way. 
And when I, so I started falling back on my master's degree and again, going through that, that round of talking to folks in Birmingham. And I ended up adjuncting at a couple of liberal arts schools here in town. And then that led to a job with the university of Alabama at Birmingham running uh, biology outreach for them. I ran a molecular genetics lab for high school teachers and students. And that's really where I started to understand what K-12 education was all about uh, meeting folks, working on my teaching chops, and we did it all inquiry-based, informal, and so it was a great way to really learn how to do inquiry. And then I started, after about three years of that, I got kind of bored with it, and I said, you know what, I want, I want my own kids. Instead of seeing these other teachers' kids three times a year, I want my own. I want to grow my own. Yeah. And so I started applying around town, and I got picked up in 2004, I believe, was my first year in the K-12 classroom, and I've been doing it ever since. That's that's a very interesting sort of back backward journey to get in there that yeah. you got through the outreach coming in um, yeah. in that way. That's a that's a, a fascinating path. I guess we you know, we have those types of things around here in in the Boston area. Um, so were you? I mean, I guess we. I guess the question is like, was this a, a funded through? NIH or funded through the the university and was it like targeted at any particular um, types of groups like inner city kids or rural kids or you got you got it exactly that's exactly where it was so it was a, a NIH SEPA grant science education partnership award between the UAB mm-hmm. Birmingham City Schools and then the McWayne Science Center and so I had uh, part of that grant was to train teachers in the summer and then bring their kids in during the school year and so my funding came through NIH, and then the kids that worked for me and with me were all on NSF GK12 fellowships, which mm. was a, such a cool program that uh, absolutely targeted at underserved communities in, in Birmingham, and then also reaching out to Jefferson County, which is a big county. We're 60 miles by 60 miles square, mm-hmm. and it's, it's everything from suburban to inner city to uh, rural, so working with those kids. Wow. So... So this sort of transitions a little bit. So you got this background, you got these chops from research, um, and I, uh, when I was looking around, um, you know, if you anyone has ever seen your Twitter handle, uh, you've got the uh, the smack them in the face with data. So it sounds mm-hmm. like your your research, your background before coming to the classroom is all about doing research, all about collecting data, making arguments based off of that. Even when you did the outreach, you know, you're doing this hands-on inquiry type stuff. So. Um, I guess my question now is now that you got to do not just the the hit and run outreach where they come in and you get to have the fun hands on. Um, I'm I'm curious how you um, how you smack your kids in the face with data sort of on a day in day out basis. Well, they, it'd be cool to hear what they had to say about that, right? Yeah. But ultimately, it's so the broader picture is I remember when I took that first gig at the Alabama School of Fine Arts, it was like. I didn't want to do anything like I had done in high school science classes, which my physics class was cool, but the other, you know, biology and chemistry classes were just boring. They weren't interesting. I love science, but they weren't interesting. It was looking at cell models and things like that, watching film strips of my mitosis, you know, it was like yep. completely boring. Uh, as I've, I guess the kind of thinking about where the genesis of the data analysis stuff started in class probably goes back to some of the AP summer institutes I did uh, with a guy named Franklin Bell who's kind of up in your neck of the woods he's up in Pennsylvania now <laughs> but it's on a uh, closer closer to you than me anyway but he was at St. Mary's uh, Hall down in San Antonio and he's an AP biology consultant and on test development for years back in the uh, 
late nineties, early two thousands. And he, he told me one thing. If every day I'm working to talk less and have the students do more. And that really kind of spoke to me. I'm like, Oh, that makes so much sense. Right. We get these dirty dozen labs that we did back in before the redesign. It, they were interesting, but they just felt sort of, deterministic you know what i mean it's like yeah. there's a known end to this and it's just not that interesting it's not even a good model of how science is done well I, so I, I immediately think of when you say that you talk about like the the photosynthesis lab right you know i had one i one of the first years i did the old dirty dozen lab i remember doing the lab and i i set it up and uh one of my groups forgot to turn the light on and then mm -hmm. we walked away and then you know we went and collected the data and i was like well you know we have this light, you know, we have this thing sitting in the room and we've got this other one in the dark. What do you think the data is going to look like? You know, mm -hmm. as opposed to the floating disk lab where they you know, pick variables and stuff like that, there was that no ability for students to make manipulations and collect mm -hmm. rich data sets. They were collecting data, but it was, it was obvious data. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's sort of the, from, from there you start to realize that even something like a, uh, Looking at DNA fragments in a gel, those are actually data. Looking at uh, transformed cells on a plate and looking at their relative size and even looking at satellite colonies on a, on a plate with not enough ampicillin, all that stuff becomes data. It doesn't even have to be – you can quantify virtually anything in the AP Bio classroom. Yeah. And when you start to think about the relationships between numbers, I think that you get closer and closer to doing what scientists actually do. Which is, as my buddy Paul would say, looking for patterns and trying to figure out if those patterns are real or not. Yeah. They don't. So couple that, and I know I'm kind of, there's never a short answer with me. <laughs> you know, trying to get kids to talk more and not just, not give me, you know, you're going to, you're going to research the Golgi body and you're going to research, you know, pull an organelle out of a fishbowl and your job is to teach that organelle or you pull a functional group out of the fishbowl and your job is to teach that functional group. I tried all that stuff early in my career because I didn't just want to talk. I wanted the kids to, to, to engage, but that's not even doing science. That's just giving a report. Yeah. You know, it's uh, scientists are interested in how things change. How is it, How does the system change given a certain type of very certain types of inputs? How does the system change as you manipulate it in a particular way? And then how do you measure that change? And those are, I mean, that's, that's data. Yeah. You know, it could be something as simple as looking at how yeast derived catalase is affected by salt concentrations or temperature or, or acids and bases. But ultimately what I'm trying to get my kids to do is to figure that stuff out and create a space for them to actually collect the data and then reflect on it and look for trends and then quantify and articulate those trends as opposed to verifying what I've already told them. Yeah, you you have a. I mean, you've sparked so many thoughts in my head as you were talking about that. Um, you know, there, I remembered uh, reading. It was in a recent uh, copy of the Science Teacher. I think it was last month, but I think it was maybe the month before. Uh, one of the articles in the back was basically advocating that you should eliminate the cells unit from your intro yeah. bio class. Just eliminate it, and then teach just all the other stuff. Like if you're teaching photosynthesis, you can teach about chloroplasts. When you teach cell respiration, right. you can teach about the mitochondria. Um, when you, you can teach about like all, you know, protein synthesis and then, you know, get into ribosomes and maybe even get into endomembrane complex. Like you can teach all of the parts that we usually, you know, used to put in the box of, right. 
of that, you know, sales unit and just teach them in a better in context in these other systems. And then as I was, I was coming in, um, I had a student ask me like this brilliant, brilliant question. So I'm, I'm in my AP group. Um, we were talking about viruses and this girl asked a question and she's like, so when viruses like HIV go and integrate, do they integrate in a specific location or can they just integrate anywhere? And I was like, well, that's an amazing question. And I didn't have the answer. And I was like, I don't know. So I spent some time looking it up and I found this article from 2015 where um, scientists found that the regions in the cell um, that are more open um, are the t- ones that are targeted. So we've also been talking about gene regulation recently with acetylation and methylation. So like immediately I'm like, all right, so I just talked about this. So I sent her the, the, the abstract and we had this like whole conversation about how that question she has links to this research that somebody's doing and links to our conversations also about gene regulation. So like I was wondering, how do I go out and get data like that? You know, other than just go steal all Bob and wait till Bob does all of it with uh, with HHMI with his data points, yeah. and then maybe use actual data and say, here's the data set on this. How do you like? How does this tell us about what's going on in a cell? You know, those type of pieces. So, yeah, yeah. You know, a buddy of mine, Danny Elegante, up in Huntsville, he says, you know, there's there's a there's a market for that. The people that could go out and 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 find those data sets and write good questions, or at least not even write the questions, come up with the concepts from which questions could be derived yeah. would be super cool. Uh, I think that the gene regulation piece is a huge one, essentially looking at, you know, the amount of protein coming out of a particular tissue and cell culture. That's, that's how we get there. Yeah. You know, uh, I, sounds like you're on the right track with that <laughs> stuff. I mean, really, cause it's just about, it's about teaching in context. I'm working with a group of three other other bio teachers here in Alabama were rewriting a pre-AP curriculum that was fact heavy and detail oriented. We're going for this more conceptual course now where, you know, my, I said, like, where do we put biochemistry? I'm like, you don't, you teach it in the context of the cell. You know, that's teach something as it comes up, carbohydrates and respiration, lipids and carbohydrates and photosynthesis. And even that to me sounds a little formulaic. You have to teach stuff in context, you know, uh, Similarly, I'm, I'm in my ecology unit right now, which is my wheelhouse. So it's a great time down here in Alabama because the days are getting longer. The leaves are starting to bud out and I'm starting with ecosystem, you know. So we did a little bit of ecosystem energetics last week, looking at Odom's old data, right? And then we're visualizing that. We're building Eltonian pyramids based on real data that's been collected. And that stuff's pretty easy to find, right? Yeah. Once we kind of understand energy flow through ecosystems, we jump in. To, we I then go into community ecology because I think that the I think the ecosystem energy flow provides a context to understand those trophic interactions, which are really the kind of the that's sort of the baseline or ground zero for understanding communities. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the IB is crazy about the competitive exclusion principle. I'm looking at it on my board across from me right now, and. Uh, like, yeah, it's like such an old model. It's not even real. So how do we, you know, I know that I know it's going to be on the IB test, one mark for defining the competitive exclusion principle. So rather than tell them, we figure it out. We just take a simple, simple model, a little game called survival of the sweetest, 30, 30 orange Skittles in the bag, 30 yellow. They pull out 10 at random, put them on the, on the square there, 10 at a time. You're the starfish. For some reason there, you have a preference for the yellow. You take out three yellow, and then you go in randomly and, and absorb 
grab three more Skittles and throw them down. So it's random as to who gets recruited, but there's always a selection pressure against the yellow. And we do, we run this thing. It takes like 15 seconds. You do 10 generations each doing 10 generations. Uh, then we put, I had them through a, a graph up on the, or just a table on the board. Uh, in of yellow, population of yellow, generation five and generation 10. And the group just came up there and threw their data. We just look for trends. There it is. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's, uh, that puts them in charge. You know, they're engaged with it. I think, I hope that didn't sound cliche, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at. No, it's, Provide- it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I, and I was, you know, it's funny because you're talking about the macromolecules. Um, I'm piloting, I teach in, um, in addition to honors and AP, I also teach an alternative program which is a little bit of a petri dish for me. I get to sort of do whatever I want with that group. Um, and uh, yeah. I got to get them ready for our state exam. Um, but I have a way of getting them there. Um, but I'm trying a, a very en- you know next generation approach um, with with this particular group. And um, I had them build Winogradsky columns. Cool. And so we're watching those basically this quarter. So they're already built. Um, and we had them do a little background on that, and they built them. And then I had them look at... Um, at biogeochemical cycles and then that's where i actually introduced the concept of the macromolecules and a little basic Mm -hmm. biochemistry and then from there we're looking at populations and then we're talking about how population growths relate to matter and energy oh cool i've got a duckweed lab set up right now where it's just baseline duckweed and they're counting Mm -hmm. sort of the populations over time and then i'm going to ask them to perturb like pick a way of disturbing it and then set up a control and a couple of variables around the duckweed and let those grow for time and then sort of see how that does it by disrupting the cycles and then my hope is that we can get that to link back to you know to those biochemistry core standpoints and then i'm going to do a photos i'm going to do the ap photosynthesis lab uh, ap cell respiration lab and, and then at the very end, the question is going to be basically coming back to that core matter and energy. How does matter mm-hmm. move through an ecosystem? How does you know, energy move through an ecosystem? Tell me how the, difference are, the two different ways are and how do humans you know, perturb the system. And so yeah. that's my, like, I got this series of labs that I'm doing, and I'm just taking sort of all these pieces that are a little bit ecology, a little biochemistry, little, you know, all these things that you need to cover. But I'm teaching it just through this series of, of labs that are there. But the kids are, as you say, generating the data, asking the questions. And these are kids who, you know, they're generally very bright, but they they don't usually have a very linear way of going through units. So they, they're pretty pliable there. I do wonder a little bit about how if I rolled this out with my honors bio students, they'd be like, so when is the test? Um, right, right. You know, like I do worry about that. But um, I find it's a real fun way to teach. Um, so these are these are these are. Uh bright kids they just don't they don't function as well in a classroom yes so so it's uh these are students who are at risk um so these are students who in our district you know in the general consensus we would say these are kids who are at risk for for dropping out of school Um, okay so kids who either through the junior high their junior high time or through some events that's happened the high school a lot of them have school avoidance issues um it's really changed i mean i've taught in the program for more than 10 years now and, um, you know, the first, the first couple of rounds I had were, I called them the heavy self-medicators. Um, okay. they were, they were very mellow. Um, yeah. they, they, but they had, you know, a lot of, a lot of problems. Um, and they, they self-medicated and they were, they were a pretty mellow group, but they also were a mix of school avoidance. And then 
um, you know, with drugs and with other things. They they just did not have a good way of getting through school. And so this is a program. It's got a lot of structure. Core academic classes. You got a team of teachers who work together. We meet together once a week now, so we can talk about the kids. We can make individual adjustments. But over time, it's it really has changed. You know, a few years ago, I had I called it you know sort of the sad girls club. I had this group of girls who were you know heavily depressed. Um, mm. You know, uh, groups of girls who were you know massive social emotional issues, and again, much more complicated than a typical you know high school student. And so these are students who don't necessarily and they range all over the place academically you know some students are really weak um, because they Mm -hmm. have a lot of gaps in their academic background Um, but most of them you know I generally say that on average they are actually academically very average students you Mm -hmm. know I mean they they weren't you know every once in a while I get a kid who's like an honors AP caliber student but you know and and very once in a while I get a kid who's like you know really struggling who would be in like our lowest level biology most of the time they're smack dab in the middle and these are kids Mm -hmm. that if they had like normal home life, no trauma, you know, um, you know, they would be right in the middle of the school. You would find them indistinguishable, but you know, unfortunately they're kids who have had a you know tough deal to them. Um, yeah. and so now they need help. And the reason they brought me in is cause, um, you know, I am the, uh, I rub the, the special sauce of making sure they get through the state, um, science exam, um, which yeah. I'm sort of like the school guru on that. So, um, every student who's ever been in the alternative program has passed the state exam. Um, I say that with great confidence that that will, that will hold through this year too. So, yeah. And you're doing that through an inquiry approach. It sounds like, I mean, an engagement approach. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I, I, that, I, it hasn't always been that way. Um, that was, this okay. is, this is self critique. Um, okay. I went to a very, uh, a, pr- a, 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 an approach I wasn't proud of. I went to an approach of this is the content of the exam. Let's pound the content. Let's get them ready. And I did go to that approach first. But mm-hmm. I have evolved with that group as my dissatisfaction with that every year since I was I, I gain a little more confidence every year. Like, all right, mm-hmm. I can slam content and get them through. Well, what if I don't slam quite as much content through and instead we do these other things? And a couple of years ago, I sat back and said, what's the one thing missing? And I said, these kids really are not. These kids are taking a history of science class. They're not taking a science class. They're learning what everyone learned about science in the past. They do not learn the process of science. Now, our current state exam doesn't test the process of science. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one will, because it's very next gen oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's been that was a a good kick in the pants. It, it worked together with me. I was in that place, and now I'm starting to turn the curriculum and get ready for that that piece. So. Yeah, I, I did uh, my first year. Hey, real quick, Aaron. Hey, uh, Anakin. Would you bring me that sphere that's hanging in the window, man? When you get a second, I want to show you something—a model that I've generated. <laughs> pull it off the pull it off the string. Just bring it over, man. Uh, my first year here at the at the IB school, we're kind of, we're a school within a school, but we're 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 a pull out building mm-hmm. next door to full service six A high school and biggest you know thousand kids, uh, mostly inner city, and we used to have an old uh, grad exam. Now the kids take the ACT and they bomb it. I mean, the most kids, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but we used to have the, the Alabama graduation uh, exam was the biology exam. And so my first year here, my principal was like, what do you think about teaching these uh, remedial classes? And I said, you know, hey, great runners can run a 5K and they can run a marathon. I know <laughs> I can teach the these kids that have really, really aren't good at school. And so I got two sections of botany and zoology, which was really just remediation, kids who had failed this exam at least twice. And uh, I can remember 
first day, Elijah Quinteris, he's sitting in there going, rocking back and forth in the stool going, hey, man, what's this Bhutani? I was like, <laughs> what? What's this Bhutani? I said, what do you mean? He said, on my schedule, it says Bhutani. I'm like, no, dude, that's botany. That's botany. Don't even worry about it. We're, this, is, we're, this is biology class. We're going to get you rocking on the grad exam. But I did all inquiry with those kids, you know, uh, just the constant going back to graphing a piece of a chunk of data, doing lab work because these kids weren't good at school. They'd flag the exam. Tw- they, they had they had data to suggest that they weren't getting it the normal way. Right. So it's like, well, that's not going to work a third time. So let's just do some lab work and try and teach them some science. My buddy Debbie Anderson down the hall. said, I said, what do I do with these kids? She goes, just teach them to love science. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, I got. 65% of those kids to pass our state exam uh, and the kids that didn't pass were many of them were learning disabled, a couple learning disabled with, uh, and ESL. I mean, it was sort of with, I love that term school avoidance. I mean, there was some real barriers for a lot of those kids, but I got 65% of, uh, 45 of them to pass and they'd never done it before. Yeah. And one of the things we sat down with the old grad exam and looked at, you know, based on the, the, Midterms and the finals they'd taken for me, we said, okay, well, where are the gaps? Where can you make the most ground up so you can pass this thing and move on with your life? And they, they responded to that. Yeah, uh, I capped this thing about a year ago. I just went outside between the buildings. I grabbed some moss and threw it in this uh, round bottom flask. Yep. I could never stop on it and hung it in the window. And it is, I, I think the moss is doubled in size, but it's got its own hydrologic cycle. It's got its own carbon cycle. The whole thing is there. This is just a beautiful system. A clo- well, it's, the IB would say it's open. It's open to energy, but close to material. Yep. And it's just cycling, man. And uh, that's sort of a poor man's Winogradsky column. So you've got some cool oxidation of the, of the, of the irons and the clay is happening on the mm-hmm. bottom. But uh, my kids just sit there and just kind of goof on it when they're, you know, they get bored. They stare out the window. They've got cool stuff to look at. But that's 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 a cool approach. I think it'll really pay off. You know? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I actually was having that thought. Um, I was having that thought just the other day. I uh, I pulled together a um, some of those AAAS assessment questions and I gave them a quiz on it uh, just to sort of see where they were. Uh, it's a little bit of a mix of like it's sort of a mid process kind of quiz. And um, I threw out a bunch of the questions about photosynthesis and cell respiration that we haven't gotten to yet. Mm-hmm. Like we're gonna get there. I know where we're going. But I just wanted to check in. And, you know, they, they did pretty well on them because we've been talking about sort of, we talked about those fundamentals and we talked about, you know, what's going on with the Winogradsky columns and what do we expect to happen. And uh, the kids were kind of excited today because uh, they came in. I had a couple kids who were, you know, as you can hear from my voice, it's, you know, cold season around here pretty hard. Um, a couple of kids who missed school and they came in and now the that algae layer uh, the photosynthetic um, aerobic algae is starting to form on the very top of the Winogradskys, but mm-hmm. it's only in the ones that we added sulfur to. The one that, right. so we so we did a, just one that was just mud, um, mm-hmm. and then we did one that was mud plus carbon, so we used newspaper, and then we did mud plus sulfur, which was an egg yolk, um, and then oh, we cool. and then we did uh, and this is all this is an H I pulled I stole the HHMI one, yeah. and then I did the egg yolk and the newspaper and the two that have sulfur in them. Use the same water. I took uh, some pond water. the The two that have sulfur have uh, an algae layer right now. This is two weeks in, so very cool. Yeah, it's, it's it's super cool. So the kids were like, "Wait, those they're different," and they could tell we were a little different. Like the egg gave like a whitish hue to the top of them mm-hmm. last time they did mm-hmm. them, but they were like, last time we collected data, it was the one week in. And they're like, these you know these ones are clear, these ones are cloudy. 
is that it? I was like, well, we're going to watch these for two months. Don't worry about it. And the kids came in and they saw them in the windowsill. They're like, they're like, oh, those are cool. Those are green. So are they measuring the depth of each band or the number of bands? Or? Um, you know what? I don't know yet. <laughs> I'm having him do yet. sketch. I'm having him like, uh, collect, um, uh, basically qualitative, uh, uh observations at this point. Um, mm-hmm. I've never taken this particular approach, so it's going to be, it's learning for me too. Uh, I don't yeah, know. Man. So I was, I always find it when I'm excited about what's going to go on, they're excited. So. Well, I'll tell you, here's a good one. I mean, I don't know if, if, if I get off the top, we just say, man, we got to stick to the script, but, uh, no script. One of the things <laughs> I hear, one of the things that I would love to do with kids like that, especially when, when you guys warm up and if you've got a little glade or a forest, you know, some tree, it's a, a treat area. Mm-hmm. I took out, you know, Strode would love this, man. Cause it's a hypothesis. Here's a hypothesis. Moss grows on the North side of the tree. Right. That's the idea because it's, it's, it, well, I don't tell the kids why, but that's the hypothesis. Let's go test that. And so we set up a tree. Uh, we kind of decide, you know, basically cardinal direction north will be 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then we, depending on the, the, the diameter of the tree the, or the, you know, the circumference of the tree, I should say, DBA diameter breast height, and thinking about how wide that tree is, we're instead of one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, six, like points around the clock. And then I have these little, I built little, uh, quadrats out of a manila folder you know like 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters mm-hmm. and they they we find the base of the tree and they take their quadrat out and they put it at the base of the tree and if it's they have to determine how much living plant material is inside that quadrat and then what's the diversity of the plant material right so you've got usually moss growing at the base of these trees uh the sunnier it turns out down here on the eastern side of uh it's actually yeah. It's on the it's on the eastern side. No, it's the western side of these trees here. You get these long sunsets at my building, so they just get pummeled with sunlight in the afternoon. Plus, the the kids figured out the building's just to the south of or the north of them, so the heat radiating off the building is sort of drying out one side of the tree. But you've got this. You've got a. You've got a total. You've got like this barren desert of moss on one half of the tree, and then 100% moss on the other side. And what they notice is that when you get to the peak diversity peak density diversity goes down but it's at those little ecotones where you where you've got enough it's just cool enough it's just wet enough to where there's opportunities for organisms to grow you may not have 100% coverage inside that quadrat but you've got maximum diversity all right well I, yeah that is a very cool lab that's a that is a cool idea yeah i, I do a garden with them uh, that's what i've oh, done cool. traditionally yeah so i do a school garden um, starting in in the spring uh, I started that a couple years ago. I took it over from a, a, a colleague who no longer is at the building, but he had had it. And then the environmental uh, science uh, teacher also has his Envirothon started a, a, a part of a garden. And then I took over basically the rest of it. So we have some strawberries that come back every year. Um, but then I got like 11 four by four plots. Um, wow. And so we basically, I mean, we don't, last year, I mean, the numbers flex. So like, I mean, there's years that a couple of years ago, I had like 11 kids in the spring, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. it, I, as I joke, you know, it's 11 kids, but 37 personalities um, in that group. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's tough. And like, my numbers are really small right now. So uh, at, when we were there, I was talking about expanding the garden and building some extra boxes and doing other stuff like that. Last couple of years, I've had, you know, numbers that are sometimes as low as, you know, right now I got three kids, uh, but that'll change. Um, mm-hmm. I've just had a couple kids transition out. Um, 
and you know it's a transition program that's kind of the nature of it if kids get strong enough they go back into the regular ed population if we can't meet their services they go to out of district that's kind of the nature of what it is so that's you know i get a kid who comes in um and so you know right now is a it's it's a pretty low number i've got three kids at the moment um so so there's days i have one um and there's days i got three and then you know I, i will guarantee you that end of March, particularly as we get closer to the state exam, uh, the number mm-hmm. of kids who need services to get ready for the state exam tend to go up. Um, yeah. and sometimes they just come from my class, but those are the kids I'll, I'll grow a garden with them. We'll go out, we'll, we'll start plants. And I think it's actually going to be really cool because we will start our planting probably after we get back from our February break and it will fit right nicely into, um, into this unit that we're currently working on and will be a nice little roll in, um, from the, you know, this, matter and energy cycling piece to go into the garden. Yeah. So it's going to be, it's going to be pretty cool. I don't know what it's going to look like cause I haven't gotten that far, but um, <laughs> I, kinda, I do a little bit of planning on it, planning as I go. At this I point. hear you. No, it makes sense. How long have you been doing? How long have you been teaching? So this is year 21 for me. So Holy cow. Yeah. You start when you're 15. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I've got the distinguished beard right now. You got the winter beard. This is, I look old now, don't I? Yeah. Mine <laughs> would be great. man. <laughs> I, usually NABT season, I grow my beard out, so I look like the gray bearded guru. Now, you know, my wife's like, I'm over that. So, oh, okay. uh, I was gonna that. Look at that, man. I'm, <laughs> 21 years. You start when you're 20? Uh, 22. 22. Good Lord. So, yeah. How long are you going to do it? Uh, until it's not fun anymore. Uh, <laughs> I hear you. I said that today. Somebody was actually saying that. They were talking about how many years, how many years. And I actually did the math. And I think by math, I have like 14 years left till I get max. Um, okay. because I started at 22, I was really young, but I said, I, I said, you know, if in 14 years I'm having as much fun as I am right now, you know, why would I stop? Um, yeah. the last couple of years in particular, I've been having a ball. So I was yeah. like, why, why would you stop? Uh, I also have to keep in mind that when I retire, my wife's probably got around 10 years to retirement. If I don't, if I didn't have a job, um, and I came and my wife came home, like I remember before we had kids, um, yeah. the, the first couple of summers, like when I mean, we just got married and she'd come home and she'd walk in the door and she was like, she was like, you're like a puppy. She's like, you got to find things to do during the day because she'd come home and I'd be like, so how was your day? Da, 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 da. And she'd be like, all right, you just got to calm down. And all I can envision is that me at like, you know, 58, 59, 60, you know, my wife comes home from work and she got, I'm like, so what'd you do today? How'd you do it? Like, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to find something to fill my days while she's, you know, she's still working. Otherwise I'll drive yep. her crazy when I retire. Um, I've thought about teaching math half time when I get, you know, after I get 25 years of science teaching in, it's like, cause my thing is I look, kids don't like math. They're not, they're not they're Well, I, a couple of kids in my room right now. So my science Olympians are freaking math geniuses. I got one kid over here, Jacob, he's two years ahead in math. Yeah. Eighth grader. He was being shipped to high school. And now he's in, he's in algebra two trig with a bunch of sophomores yeah. as a ninth grader. He's already taken geometry. So he'll be, what are you pre-cal next year? Pre-cal is a sophomore. I mean, a kid's freaking gone. Yeah. But a lot of kids, they they can do the math. They've just never been engaged with it. They've never really been told why it's valuable. They've just been told to do math. And so <laughs> I'd like, I'd like to work with general kids and teach algebra or geometry because it's just it's freaking it's laws of nature, man. You know what I mean? So teach the math and go wrench on bikes half of the day. That's what I'd like to do. <laughs> I taught uh I taught summer school math. Uh, to um, to an upper bound program when I first started teaching, and that mm-hmm. was just it was funny. I taught it. I, I was teaching physics back then as well, and so basically I would do like my vector lab 
um, to when I taught trig, we'd go out and do my vector lab, and I just made it a geo lab instead of a physics mm -hmm. lab. But it was, it was the same lab, the exact yeah. same lab, exact same lab uh, that I taught the trig. You know, taught trig a little mini trig, a little bit of geo, um, but it was it was the physics vector lab of adding up vectors. How tall is that tree? How can we find yep. how tall that tree is? You know, how can we get multiple data points? How can we do you know triangulate? Uh, we did stuff like that, so it's good fun. All right. I would like okay. to ask you, I think we've answered the inquiry. How do you get inquiry in there? But I would like to ask, my question is, you know, you you had that um, that PAE MST presidential mm -hmm. award uh, thing. So what was your biggest takeaway from that, from that experience you had? I think uh, two things. Uh, one was there's some really cool science teachers go out here and there's really cool programs and none of them look the same, you know, but I think, uh, these folks that are winning, uh, the, the, the folks that were up there in DC with me with the paints, they were, they were better than what, better than me at what I did, but that was better at some, it was, it was cool. Everybody had their own different kind of their thing, but the common thread was just a passion for doing science and, uh, a real passion, uh, I mean, a, a passion for doing science because guess what? They were mostly came from science backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, uh, the guy from Maine, Kerry James, he's actually coming down uh, this weekend because he's got. He just picked up a. He he is a PI on an NSF grant to look to work with underrepresented uh, groups in STEM and figure out how to engineer stormwater management solutions. Mm -hmm. So it's cool stuff. He's working with Mississippi State and Florida, Central Florida and uh unc charlotte and so he's he's flying into mississippi he's going to come over to birmingham and hang out with me because we just hit it off immediately mm -hmm. up in uh dc and i'm actually working with him this summer teaching the stream ecology portion of his program this summer in maine wow so yeah it's really cool and uh so the takeaway is there are networking opportunities out there for great science teachers and you just have to put yourself out there and 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 find people who are like-minded, not necessarily like you, but have that are like-minded. Yeah. The guy from Georgia, unbelievable. He's doing CRISPR inside of his research class at a high school. He teaches AP physics, AP chem, and a biotech research class. Dude is freaking stud. It's like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's just what he does. Uh, it's just there There are so many good science teachers out there, and there's so many different ways to do science education. The common thread is just do what you know works for the kids that you have and follow your path. Uh, yeah, the passion piece is that I think that's the one thing that keeps coming through as I keep talking to different teachers, you know, how passionate they are for what they're doing and who they're talking to. And, you know, you know, as you say, you talk about field ecology, you talk about measuring moss, and you can hear the excitement, you know, coming out, you know, talking about the diversity um, and you, just everybody you talk to that has those, those points where they get, they geek out. And, um, yeah. it's the one thing that you just never fake in front of the kids. Right. Like, if you're standing, you know, uh, you know, you're standing in front of the room and I, I know that I went through a long period. I had a conversation with, with Paul Strode about this, so sort of about the evolution of the teacher. You know, when I started teaching a lot of what you said earlier, you know, I did not want to be the teacher that I had in high school, nothing against her. But mm -hmm. she would, you know, five days a week, she'd come in, lights would go out, she'd pull, roll that little uh, thing that she'd write on the the, the, the overhead projector, and she'd uh -huh. write her notes on the overhead projector, 
and we would write them down in our notebooks. And one out of six days, uh, we would do a lab. And I mm-hmm. don't remember a single lab we did in high school. I do not remember a single high school biology lab I did. Which, I got you, man. Um, so, like, I never. years in, doing it. Yeah, but I never wanted, but I didn't remember them when I started teaching either. I remembered my mm-hmm. high school physics labs. I remembered yeah. some of my chem labs. But I didn't remember a single, I majored in biology. I didn't remember a single high school biology lab I did. Uh, there wasn't a moment where I was like, oh, yeah, there. And I didn't, I did not enjoy bi- biology in high school. When I got to college and I got to do biology, I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. biology. That, that's when it got fun. So um, I think that, you know, I had a kid say that a couple of years ago uh, to another teacher. Um, uh, they, were talking, they were talking about their classes, and I guess the girl turned after my name came up, and she turned and said, he is so excited, um, like, about what we were doing. And I was like, well, I cannot pay me a higher compliment, you know, than, yeah. than being excited about what we do. So, uh, so that's great. So it's good. I can't wait. I'm going out to NSTA in a couple of weeks. That'll, cool. be, that'll be network time for me too. So I'm going to yeah, out in LA. Yeah. Out in LA. We'll have to meet for real. Cause uh, Strode is going to stay. He's bunking with me. Oh and, yes. Uh, yes. My buddy, Tom Freeman from uh, Huntington beach is going to come up and stay with me too. So I'm working for Pasco that weekend. Okay. And so I'm the guy with the room. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's, how, that's how Paul's doing it. He was telling me, like I talked to him two months ago. He's like, I got now HHMI is not funding me. I got to figure out how I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. We both we both got the freeze out from HHMI this time. They're trying to spread the wealth. They're bringing yeah. in a lot of folks. So yeah. uh, uh, I think the Paints Award really helped. I've been working with Pasco Scientific for about a decade. That's yeah. another way I've gotten into the data. So actually, you know, teaching teachers how to analyze data, how easy it is, and how powerful the stories become when it's not about facts but about patterns. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike Blasberg at Pasco Scientific, he and I, I mean, we we're just we're we're colleagues and friends. I mean, he 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 realizes he's got four biology workshops to fill. I'm the first call, which I appreciate. I don't take it for granted at all. So it'll be nice to be out there, and uh, we'll get to meet. And, and uh, it's good. To, it's always good to see Paul. We see each yeah. other a couple three times a year. So yeah, I'm gonna uh, have, yeah. I'm gonna have to get a big table now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got got Bob Coon. I got Robin Baleri. I got uh, who else was I saying there? Oh, Lee Ferguson. Yeah, all these people. I've been like. Booking the dance card. I can't wait. So cool. I'm looking at yeah, Lee will be there for HHMI, which is her first. She got called up to the biointeractive <laughs> folks. So that's that, that's really nice. Lee and I are uh we just like to say there's a there's a there's a federal law that we have to see each other four times a year. So right <laughs> now we're hitting it. And I'll see her in I'll see her in April at NSTA and then we're working together at NSTA regionals in New Orleans and uh NABT uh, next fall, so we got it. We got it mapped out. <laughs> That's great. That's great. All right. So we talked about in the upcoming year or the, what we've been doing, and you know, you did drop the line that you're gonna quit your uh, your science teaching job and uh, you know, gonna become a, a you know, work on your bike and uh, and teach math. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, before you uh, you give it all up for uh, losing money in a bike store, uh, right? Why? Well, <laughs> I hear you. Go ahead. Sorry, you're right. You're right. That's why I do it out of my basement, man. Yeah. It's cheap. Yeah. Uh, before you you switch over uh, and become a gear monkey, uh, what are you looking forward to in your classroom the next few years? In the classroom, that's a great question. I am. I'm really enjoying this research class. You know, I'm really starting to figure out what kids can and can't do, and uh, 
something that I've been, you know, I talk about with administrators, not so much from the, it's that if you, when the teacher sets the expectation, the kids will rise to that expectation. I know you probably know that through yeah. experience, you know, through your colleagues and the folks that you value. But uh, in this research class, we have the opportunity to screw up all the time. That's adults and kids. So for a specific example, I was really red hot to teach regression analysis to my research kids. These are ninth and 10th graders. This is back wow. in December. And we had finished doing uh, – We'd, I taught them how to do a t-test because I kind of, I learned that from Paul. So I really kind of, I learned a lot about sort of grew into my ability to do inferential stats working with Paul and talking with Paul. But I'm doing it in my classroom. It's making me better. So we, they got the t-test, no problem. All right, now let's start looking at some correlations. They were looking at me like I was nuts. I mean, these are these are very bright kids. They're self-selected to do science, but it was December. They were gassed out. They were ready for a break. It just didn't work. So I, I, I thought, you know, well, I couldn't do it. Well, they couldn't do it that day. They couldn't do it that week. It doesn't mean they can't, right? Yeah. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to try again. We'll get some different, we'll collect some different data and we'll, we'll take a second run at it. And it worked out really well. They, they, they got the concept. They were able to work the calculations. They were able to uh, articulate what the, what that R value meant and uh, they could do it. So that's sort of a, a microcosm of where I'm trying to head, which is to continue developing those quantitative skills, teaching kids how to articulate what they see on paper, like look at the numbers, recognize the pattern, be confident in their ability to describe what they're seeing and uh, just make it more authentic, man. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I think that you talk about that coming back to it, coming back to it. So um, I did this past week. Uh, I was posting last week about um, on Twitter, um, my one of my favorite labs. So I designed this lab series. Uh, one of my deep passions is the microbiome. So one of my cool. things I do with my cool. AP, with my AP Bio kids, um, uh, and it's like something I got really into like five years ago. Like I kind of want to mm -hmm. say I was like I was hip to this before everybody else was. Like yeah, I went did. to one of my colleagues five years ago and said, "This is going to be huge." Um, but I got a, a fellowship a couple summers ago. Worked in lab, and I designed. Uh, eventually, after many fails, uh, this lab series that my kids do where they set up fruit fly cultures and they have a control fruit fly that they use the Carolina blue food um, mm -hmm. and then they get to feed them something else. And so I asked them to do some research to figure out how they can per possibly perturb the microbiome. So pick a food that might be able to disrupt the microbiome. And so before they do that, I played out on differential media um, the just the wild type flies. Or I shouldn't say wild type. They're they're lab reared wild type flies, um, so they get to sort of see what colonies look like on the different types of media, and then they go and they do their research, and then they find these things, and then they come back and they set up these feeding strains. Well, lo and behold, what do you know? Some of the kids when they set up their feeding strains, all the flies die. Um, turns out when you put push like 100% garlic juice instead of water into the food fly fly vials, the kids come in and they're like, all our flies are dead. I'm like, all right. Let's set it up again. What do you mean set it up again? Let's do it and let's cut the percentage. And I'm like, how much percentage did you use? 100%. All right, well, serial dilution would say a 10% would be our next step. Let's try 10%. And so we, like, it's the same week. But this is something we do over a month. So sure. it's like, yeah, you killed them. Great. Let's get some new flies. Let's do it again. 
Um, I had another group that did something with metal. I forget what kind of metal it was, but they looked like an aluminum, some sort of aluminum metal they looked up. They actually come up with like four or five, and I'm like, yeah, we don't have those things. But I was able to get them a metal. They did the same thing. They took their flies, I think, three days to die. But they were up looking pretty sickly after day two. Um, so then we did it. We cut their concentration back again, set it up. So they, we got to go through this process of working out materials and methods. Mm-hmm. And because I set a long enough time frame on it, had groups that you know mix it up. And uh, when they when they played it out after a month, and they played it out their flies, they pulled them, surface sterilized them, played it out the guts. They like legitimately got differences. Would you think that feeding basil to fruit flies would shift their microbiome communities? I, would I wouldn't. Have, I would have never thought that. But they found some research that talked about certain oils that were in basil that mm-hmm. would would suppress certain types of microbes. And like clear as day, the plates were clear as day. So that's a good, you know, it's like there. And so then um, what I did last year with them, and I tried it this year, although we utterly failed, is we pluck colonies and we do PCR on the 16S. And then we run a gel and we get the bands and then we can cut those bands out and purify them and send them off. But the gels were crap this year. So I think I need to get some fresh tack in and um, play around with that. But I said that to the kids. They were a little disappointed. I'm like, oh, don't worry. After break, we'll get some fresh tack. We'll rerun it. We'll make it work. Um, But like, like to me, this is like, this is my... You know, I don't get to run a lab, but I get to run a lab. Um, absolutely. You know yeah, what that's I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah, that's I, I love it. So. Absolutely. I did mitochondrial genetics about seven or eight years ago. That's kind of how I made my bones. Yeah. You know, I was, I was doing mitogen long before it was hip, you know, and um, I, I just lucked out, went to a workshop in uh, Bethesda, met this guy, Dan Sher, who was at UAB, He's, which is just up the street. We had to fly to Maryland to meet each other. And uh, we went, our job was to, uh, Develop a mod too much? No, no. Did you present in San Francisco or did you present yes. in Boston? Did you present in San Francisco? I saw your presentation in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. I yeah. like as soon as you like, I'm like, you know, your name, like your face, like everything's familiar. I mean, you're more familiar with the big beard, but like you said that and I was like, oh my God, I sat in your session. I remember that little, that hotel room that or hotel to conference yeah. room that you did that presentation. I was there in, in San Francisco. Cool, you man. That. <laughs> That was a, that was a that was a pretty big crowd. Frank Bell was in that. Is, yeah. at that uh, he was in there too. I've got a few pictures of that. In fact, that whole that whole whole session is uh, is tape Pasco taped that one. So uh-huh. just in case you use it again. But yeah, that was uh, so I did that. I I did that with uh, ASHAG, American Society of Human Genetics, and my buddy Dan. Yeah. And then we just I mean he had a postdoc down the hall. We found some found some constructs that fit the idea of what a what a what this particular locus of the, of the of the mitochondrial genome would look like, and now Edvotech makes it. Yeah, I mean, it's tells it. It's super cool. Well, but, so you want to know what? So, like at that time when I saw that presentation, it was in that moment where, like, that was really important. I, like, I don't do this. Actually, a colleague of mine does that lab. Um, he does it mm-hmm. in his summer research program. Um, he does the Edvotech one or or something like it because there's a couple mm-hmm. kids out there. But at that time, we. We only we were doing the only gels we were running in our school were um, this like who done it like dies thing. Yeah, and I was like really frustrated because I was like this, this is boring. Um, yes, but uh, we also didn't have any ability to do PCR, and that really started me pushing like, all right, how are we going to be able to do PCR? Like we got like we are we're supposed to be at a STEM school. We're supposed to have this ability. Mm-hmm. We don't do jack for STEM. So mm-hmm. how do we do that? And that presentation was one of, I went to like two or three at that particular one, at that particular conference in San Francisco mm-hmm. that basically were like, yep, 
we are in the dark ages. We're delusional if we think we're a STEM school. We need to up our, our ante. We need to try some things. And that put us down a road where we went to borrowing some thermocyclers that was mm-hmm. bad. Um, and then eventually I've got like these, uh, they're called uh, um, PCR-1. Uh, okay. No, they're not PCR-1. They are open PCR. That's the one I got. Open PCR. They're these build-your-own thermocyclers. Those are so cool. The Chai Biology, the kits? They're, like yeah. For the- yeah, they're basically yeah. come in this like, I don't know what they're called. They come in like it's basically like particle board with all the inners. Yeah. And I had my AP kids build them one year. Um, we got some money. I got some money at the end of the year where I got a couple kids who um, became um, Intel finalists or Intel at one of the region levels. And this the school gets a little kickback of money when that right. happens. And they're like, and they were, you know, our students. They were AP students, AP bio students. And they're like, do you have anything that you have in there? I was like, yes, I want this. And then they're like, oh, it's great. And then I was like, can I get two of them? And they're like, okay. So they bought, I, I think I, we had $1,000 uh, yeah. from Intel. And I'm like, can you kick 200 more in so I can get two of them? And that, those are the ones we're still running. We're still that's running cool. like so several years. You're going to love this, man. So I've been, that's the one thing I had to give up was my PCR machine when I switched schools. Yeah. But Barsha Shridhar is a Intel STS finalist. We get two grand. Yeah. I'm getting a PCR machine, man. Yeah. So we're ordering the we're doing the little guy, uh, the one that uh, Denison's working for the now. Mini? Uh, is that mini? Mini PCR. Yeah. And it's got eight cells. I mean, it's a start. You know, yep. we a vendor that'll sell it Jefferson County. We can't just buy whatever we want. It's screwed up. But yeah. I want one that comes in a box and you build it. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same, same deal, man. We'll start with that. And uh, I'm going to keep building it, building up the arsenal to get back to doing uh, more genetics, more molecular genetics. I'm going to start the... Uh, IB Bio's got a bioinformatics uh, uh-huh. option. Yep. So I'm going to start that next year. I'm going to move away from the ecology and get back to the bioinformatics because I want to like kind of forward. I'm really interested in uh, the basically the the genomics of the soil. You know that's oh, yeah. interesting. Ecological genomics. What the hell is going on yeah, you gotta with get the, the f- rise level and the leaf litter level? There's so much cool shit you could look at. Yeah, and you got to do phage. You got to you got to do phage hunters. You're digging okay. out soil. You got to get into phage hunters. I haven't done it yet, but looking for phages in the soil. Um, that sounds cool, man. It is. Yeah, Pittsburgh. Uh, they've had a program. It's ebbed and flow. Uh, you know, over the last few years, and I, every couple of years, it's one of those things. Like, I, I peek to see where they are and what they're doing, and are they doing outreach? But um, that's one of those ones that I. It's a, one of my back burners. I, you know, I, I tend to take on like twelve too many things. You know, mm-hmm. like a microbiome project and redesigning my alternative program and a podcast and those type of things. Um, but uh, on my one of my back burner projects, I totally want to do is this, is that phage those phage hunters project. So um, I'm so one of these days. One of these days, I'm going to do that. Yeah, man. It's, it's you got and that see that passion right there that bleeds over to the kids. The yeah. kids, you got to find stuff that keeps it fresh, as you said, keeps it fun. But ultimately, we're just trying to we're trying to pick up new skill sets. We're trying to do new stuff. I think. That's that's what real life is. Nobody in I don't know what it is about some teachers. I'm not bagging on my colleagues, but it's like it's the only profession where you're expected to be static. And if you're if you're if you're dynamic and moving forward and pushing yourself, you're you're not necess- you're appreciated, but you're like the you're the outlier. Imagine uh, imagine a financial company uh, or a, that that just did the same old thing. Imagine a computer. What if Apple was still making big old Apple IIe desktops, right? We, what the hell? That's a, that's to me, that's a natural part of being a being. You know, is like 
trying to figure new stuff out. And then for those of us that have the opportunity and privilege of imparting some ideas to other people, that's, we just teach them to other people, you yeah. know? Well, and then uh, the other piece is that as a scientist, science doesn't stop. Science is not about getting answers. Science is about getting to that next question. Yeah, I like it. And so for, for, for me, that's been sort of my big thing is, you know, teach, teach like a scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I finally figure something out, when I, when I like totally nail something about how to teach a concept to a kid, really get it like, all right, I totally have this down. I know how to roll this out. That becomes boring. That becomes Absolutely. over. Like as soon as I know exactly how to, to transmit that, it's cool. That moment it's done. But the question mm-hmm. is like, all right, so what's the next thing I got to figure out? Because there's like out of the 10,000 ideas that we try to com- you know, convert the kids over to, yeah, every time you get one, it's like, great. That's like, I'm not going to Super Bowl. I'm going to like Super Bowl dance time is not is not here. It's like, all right, got that yes. one done on to all the things that I fail to impart on a regular basis. That's right, man. I always say, you know, I'll tell my kids, I'm like, damn it, there was my one good idea for the day. That was yeah. it. That was a good one. The rest are going to be crap, you know, but it's true. You just got to keep coming up with ideas and keep trying. And uh, it's similar to why I don't use the Promethean board. Uh, you know, colleagues are math teachers. Like, oh, you, you can store so much stuff on there. I'm like, what? Why would I store stuff? It's it's the same. I want to, I might figure it out better in an hour. I want to try it again. I need to be actively engaged in what I'm thinking about. That's sort of how I, how I approach uh, working with kids. That's something Paul and I have been talking about. He's he's still got, he's got a lot of powerpoints and he's he's in the lab, but he's also got that didactic thing down. Mm-hmm. I'm becoming like your alternative kids, more and more nonlinear. It's like just jump in with a question and let's figure this out. And then I have to remind the kids, it's like I know where we're going. You know, I know I know the path. I know the test's coming in May, but damn it, we're going to figure this stuff out in context because that's interesting. Yeah, it's awesome. All right. So uh, I think I know a little bit about this, but when you're not in the classroom, what do you like to do? I am an, it's funny, exercise has always been a big part of my life. So I've always exercised. I used to marathon. Uh, I stopped that about a decade ago. I saw, I like to ride bikes. I like to ride bikes. I like to work on bikes. I absolutely love both. Uh, my bike is right behind me. There it is. <laughs> got all my gear laid out dry, ready to get home. Uh, I saw one of those, I saw the, the tour a few years ago was wet and cold and they were on some cobbles and maybe these guys were covered in mud. I'm like, that is freaking cool. Whatever the hell that is, I like that. It's road bikes and muddy. And I, I learned about cyclocross. And so I just started said, I guess it's time to get back on the bike. And so I saved up money, sold a couple kayaks, uh, <laughs> on a bike. And then I started riding to work and it was just awesome. Clear my head in the morning, uh, clear my head on the way home. I've exercised for roughly two hours by the time I get to the house and uh, I can start drinking beer. It's good. <laughs> so I, I like to ride bikes. I like to drink beer. I like to hang out with my uh, science buddies and, and talk science and, uh, you know, that's what I do. And I, I've, I, I have a lovely wife and, and two kids, one in college and one who's in sixth grade. And I like to hang out with them, but I've sort of, you know, my college kids never home. My, yeah, my 11 year old is starting to sort of pull out a little bit. So I get, it's been fun. I've like, I've got friends again, you know, it's like guys I care about. So, and people that, that, that like me, which is fun. I mean, that's, that's sort of what I do. I sort of, my, my life is sort of centered around work and exercising and, and, talking science yeah. this is great 
there's a great community out there if you go find it, man. Yeah. Not bad. Nothing wrong with any of that. I I don't cycle. I mean, I do. I have my bike. My bike is my bike is over in the corner on the um, on the trainer. But I I hate the bike, so um, <laughs> I, I use it as occasional cross train. But that's about it. Um, so what do you do? I'm a runner. That's awesome. my that's my big thing. Yeah. So um, I've been uh, sort of starting to build back out my um, my uh, I I've run seven marathons now. Nice. Uh, over the last uh, five years or so. Cool. Um, so I've been, uh, but I, you know, right now I'm, I, I ran, I PR'd last, I broke, I broke 330 last year um, in March, which was a good PR for me. And then yeah. I, tr- I tried to cycle through into a second marathon. And by the time I got to the start, you know, the start line, I was pretty darn beat up. And uh, yeah. so like, I've been sort of down, you know, down on mileage, cut my mileage way back over the last few months and just starting to build up. Haven't thought about what next one's going to be, but I'm now into yeah. destination races. Now I'm like, yes. what's an interesting place I can go see and mm-hmm. run a marathon, um, which might seem like torture, but. <laughs> yeah, I like, I always liked the, 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 that peak, that apex fitness you had a couple of weeks before the race to me was mm-hmm. as much fun as the race itself. It just feels so good. But I, when I was finishing up, uh, like I, I could go run a 16, 18 mile run in the morning, but I couldn't chase my kid around the yard. So I was like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, I had some, some, uh, GI issues and, uh, autoimmune stuff happen a few years, about a decade ago, which kind of threw me out of running. So it's, it, but the bike's been great. Uh, and I wrench on bikes too. I started a little bike shop in my basement and, uh, work on friends and neighbors bikes. I do it. I do a pop-up shop in the summertime at a farmer's market. And that's a great way to meet people and promote healthy living. You know? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I think, I think, I mean, I, I didn't ever, uh, bike or swim. And then last time I kind of got burned out on running, I, um, I switched over. A good friend of mine is like a phenomenal triathlete, like went to compete at the world's, uh, one year triathlete, uh, kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He's a guy, a friend of mine is way faster than me, but I kind of got burned out on running and, and I was like, I'll do, I'll do triathlon. I'll do a sprint triathlon, but I really couldn't swim and I didn't own mm-hmm. a bike. Um, so I bought a bike and I took swim lessons and I learned, and I got to tell you, I, of the two, if you had asked me beforehand, which I would pick up, I would have totally said biking, but I so prefer swimming. Like, do you like pool, huh? That's cool. Yeah. Like that. So, you know, as it's one of those things where, and I know when I've been running too much and last year I broke 2000 miles, uh, actually wow. I, bro- I, I might've broken 2200. Uh, 2, uh, I don't think I quite, I was 21 and change last year. I, I ran two marathons, two marathon cycles, you know. Um, but at the end I could tell that I was running exclusively and not crossing at all, never mm-hmm. in the pool. And I could tell you where my injuries were. They were all the things yeah. that I work out by swimming. So, um, yeah, this is the, my, this is my teaching podcast that ends up talking about triathlons and running and, uh, cycling at the end. Cause there are so many teachers who bike and run and swim and yeah. <laughs> do all that stuff. So well, you've got to stay fit. I think, yeah. you know, when you're, Teenagers keep you young. That sounds like such a cliche, but it's true. Yeah. You know, and I'm at the point where I'm the age of my students' parents. You know, which is when I started, I sure wasn't. You know what I mean? I was just yeah. young now in my thirties and now I'm middle aged and I got, you know, these kids talk about their parents. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, don't do that. Your parents are cool. You're cool. Your parents have to be somewhat cool. You know, I don't want to hear it. You know. Well, uh, my my youngest will be a freshman next year, and that's one of my and, cohorts and I teach. Yeah. My old, yeah. my oldest rather, sorry, my oldest is a, a, gonna be a freshman next year. My youngest is uh, he'll be in fifth grade. So, okay. So next year, so yeah. they're they're like I know what you're talking about because next year I I have a freshman 
in at the house next year. You know, he's in eighth grade right now, but he's I mean, he's huge. He's gonna pass my pass me in height any day now. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I know what it's like. Uh, but the kids in front of me, I'm basically you know dad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We uh, these are kids that uh, they think the Red Hot Chili Peppers are like super classic rock. You know, they don't even remember like we came up listening to those guys. You know, yeah, I realized these kids. <laughs> They don't even know a life uh, before Kurt Cobain died. You know what I mean? He's yeah. like, isn't that wild? Yeah. I was in grad school when that stuff was going on. Yeah. Well, I remember, it's funny, like, I remember having a conversation a couple of years ago uh, with some kids, and um, and they were talking about, like, they were talking about the Beastie Boys, um, mm-hmm. and they were playing some of the Beastie Boys, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're playing some old Beastie Boys, and I was like, yeah, I, I like the Beastie Boys. And they're like, you like the Beastie Boys? And I was like, all right, sit down and shut up. Because I remember in 1987 when I was at a junior high dance yeah. <laughs> when the first album came out. <laughs> so, right. yeah, I, I know. Yes, I know the Beastie Boys. <laughs> so, yeah. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I got I did, like, you know, like so when Red Hot Chili Peppers, I was like, yeah, when George Clinton produced their first album, you know, that kind of thing, you know, yeah. before Mother's Milk. They're like, right, before what? Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You got it. Man. It's yeah. fun. Yeah. That stuff keeps Smart though, you know, and uh, it keeps you healthy too. I think you know it's this is a good way to make a living. I think a lot of folks forget that. Yeah. Oh, it, well, I mean, the teenagers, as I said, the best part of the job is the, te- the kids. The second best part is the science. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the the, I, the kid. If you don't enjoy the kids, I don't care how much you love science. If you don't like teenagers, right. what we do is impossible. <laughs> oh hell no! It's 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 a it is it is now I they know that like. Don't talk to me before seven forty-five. I mean, when the when you you don't exist until seven forty-five, and when the seven forty-five hits, I love you. And you know, I got three guys in here doing astronomy for Science Olympiad. I think. I mean, they, there's a certain group of kids that know they're welcome anytime. This yeah. is a workroom, a place to socialize. But yeah, I'll do anything for them. Yeah. You know, they uh, they're cool. <laughs> it's a yeah, man. I think you know the fun of the kind of on that point sort of. You know, I like to joke with my kids. I'm like, how many of you guys dream of being a science teacher? You know, <laughs> not a hand goes up. And it clearly was not my yeah. trajectory. You know, I thought I was going to be a doctor. You know, what else do you do with a science degree? And I just, it, I didn't really, I didn't do organic very well. I, I got sucked into ecology in undergrad going on a bunch of field trips with a professor that I love, a guy named David Kessler, and uh, ended up teaching science but yeah. doing it well doing it i i think i do it well you know uh, yeah it's, it's cool it's cool i think if whatever you're doing if you're doing it because you love to do it and uh you do and your and your talents allow you to do it without just killing yourself every night then it's it's worth doing yeah and i could probably could be an ap chem an ap chem teacher I'd, it would i'd be faking it you know yeah I could do it, but I'd be faking it. I'd be looking at an AP bio job down the hall. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Makes perfect sense. Although I got my doubts. I think you would find the love you have. I think you I think if you were to AP I think you were an AP chem teacher, you'd find the parts of AP Chem that you loved. Yeah. And that would drive yeah. you. But the bio just it's it's just like breathing. I've, I've yeah. been doing this a long time. And this yeah. there, there's something something about biological systems. There's the predictability to them. There's uh with also that beautiful nuance of emergent property and there's always an exception. It just makes yeah. for really cool, a cool way to study how the world fits together. It's what drives, en- yeah, drives, what? drives engineers crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. All right. So, uh, before I get to pick the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Well, uh, 
what uh what got you into podcasting oh i'm a i'm a huge podcast junkie i love listening to podcasts i i have uh 15 or so in my regular queue and it's it's a way i like to listen when i drive i don't i could not cycle well i could cycle but it would take me forever to get to and from work but i have about a 35 minute commute each way okay um and uh, I just, you know, I just load up the podcast and I listen to them and, you know, on the weekends when I'm tinkering around the house. So something I've always enjoyed. And then I, a couple of years ago, I was at NABT and I, I had done a presentation with some people and um, afterwards we went out and sat down and we we're having a beer and we were talking. It was four teachers from totally different places, totally different types of students. And we were talking and I was just like, I want to capture this. I want to bottle this. I don't want to just go to a conference once or twice a year and sit down with somebody and have this like phenomenal conversation. I want to have this conversation all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of what the genesis of this was. And then, you know, last year I, I decided I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to like figure out how to, how to do it and become a little hobby and set myself to do two a month and do a year and see what it's like. And I, I will say, you know, I was, I was talking to Bob Kuhn. He, he was on my last episode and um, that's the one that's going to come out um, this upcoming well, I'm recording them a little out of order here, but, uh, and I was just saying that like, I feel like it accelerated my learning this year so much. Hmm. I've tried so many things this year. I would never have done had, yeah. had I not had these conversations with, you know, the Paul Strodes of the world and the, you know, Lee Ferguson's of the world. And the like, I, I basically went out and said, I'm going to geek out. I'm going to find, I'm going to find people who do what I do better and differently <laughs> and and that's what i've been doing all year that's cool yeah kelsey burris and i kelsey's i call kelsey my west coast representation he's a he's out in vancouver washington and mark little you probably know mark from from broomfield where the three of us are uh and pasco guys together and we talked about doing this but never did it so kudos to you for freaking doing it you know what i mean that's there's not enough of this out there they're really you see interesting stories uh hell i'm sitting in some pd with my with our middle school uh director the other day i was like this is awesome man this is like we're talking about teaching and it's just a high level conversation it's interesting it's yeah. interesting my buddy dave holbert who'd be kind of cool to interview dave's like you get a bunch of teachers in a room together interested in something they can do anything yeah. you know and you need something done call a damn science teacher because they'll figure it out They'll yeah. figure it out with a 27-minute lunch. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's awesome. Well, what about your AP classes? You got you got three in your alternative classes. How many in your AP bio classes? Uh, my AP is right now. They're actually a little on the small side this year. I got 21 and 22 in those okay. two classes. And then my honors bio are 25 and 28. Cool. So, so those are – and all those numbers are a little down. Like this is a yeah. small year for me. It's it, AP has usually been hovering around 24 – um, our numbers just a little bit down the last couple of years, and then honors is sometimes up in the 30s. So having it in the 20s, we went we added an extra section this year. It was great. Um, so cool. yeah, it's good. All right. Yeah. So my my last question. I don't know. Did you have a a pick of the episode? Anything that's grabbed your attention recently that was worth sharing? Aside from the 45 other things we've shared. <laughs> yeah. I think it's. It's sort of an, it's more of an idea than something specific. This the science denialism is really interesting to me. You know, when I came into NABT, people that was when Klitzmiller and Dover had just happened, and uh, that was a that was an Atlanta meeting when uh, the judge I should know his name he's such he's a hero, and then all the folks from Dover were in town to to, to talk about their experiences. I was coming out of university and going to high school, right? So I'm like, 
what the hell are we doing having this conversation again? I thought we had this in the 20s. Isn't this over? No, it's not over. And it continues to not be over. Yeah. I think science has, you know, one of the things I like to tell my kids is science is not the answer, but it's always going to be part of the solution to any of our thorniest problems. I think that biology in particular and environmental science and conservation biology are going to have huge ramifications for how we exist on this planet in the next in the next few decades and so that's kind of that's kind of where my head's at and that's something i think that these teachers really need to think about not about ego like it's not you know kumbo's got the better idea than i do and screws that's not it's like let's no. figure out messages and let's figure out a way to to not preach it but to advocate for it and yeah. and, and engage people in why science is so important. Yeah. That's sort of, that, that to me, that's what I'm thinking about, man. All right. Let me give you my pick. Cause I think you might like it. I don't know if you're a podcast junkie, but if you're not, you should check out uh, Twivo, which is this okay. week in evolution. Uh, it's a, oh, wow. it's a podcast. Um, so I've actually plugged a couple of these uh, podcasts before, cause there's this guy named Vincent Racaniello. He's a virologist from Columbia. Um, he got together with Niels Eldy, who's an evolutionary biologist who's out at Utah and uh, mm -hmm. they basically put out this podcast. But the link that I've put in is for the Hopi Hoekstra uh, episode. Yeah. So, uh, and Hopi is like super cool. And I think as a science teacher, you know, she talks about sort of her track through, which includes, you know, rock pocket mice and mm -hmm. a lot of the other HHMI stuff. And she's got some just amazing things. So um, I, I, I love the all of the this week in episodes that uh, Vincent Racula puts out. He has a this week in evolution. This week in virology was his first one. He has this week in microbiology. This week in parasitology. Um, so he's got a bunch of those, and that's like I listen to those all, and it's it's just great stuff. It's right up my alley. But I thought that the Twivo would very much be a one that people would want to check out because of of Hopi Hoekstra and, and all the stuff she talked about. Yeah, she's cool. Hey, do you ever do, talk to? Uh... Professors or is it always high school teachers? So this is episode 18, and so far it's only been high school teachers. So, um, uh, And I've, I'm hoping to get a couple middle school teachers later on this year um, as well, and then um, and then maybe in some college as well. So okay. we'll, we'll see. I got. I mean, you know, we're episode 18. I'm checking off the states. Yeah. Got Georgia, got Alabama, got Florida, got yeah. Texas, got yep. Colorado, yep, Texas. got New York, got New Jersey. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've been checking them off. I've been going through, I need to put a little map up behind me. So, yeah, that, that would be cool. All right. Well, yeah. this has been, uh, Ryan, this has been awesome. This has been a great talk. Hope it, you enjoyed it as much as I did. I thought it was great. That was great. I, I, I didn't know what I was getting into, but I love it, man. I'm glad, I'm glad you called me. I'm glad that, uh, you consider me in that, in that nebula of, of, <laughs> of my friends, man, Robin and Bob and Paul and Lee. I mean, those are, those are my people. Yeah. Yeah. They all speak highly of you. Oh, good. good. All, right. Don't know <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna give you my uh, my credits here. Uh, music by uh, on this and every every episode is uh, provided by Jenk Jenkins and X Magicians. Uh, you can get this podcast um, on Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, any t any place you can download podcasts. This is available. Um, this this is gonna be our early March episode, and so this will be coming out in early March. Uh, you can. Uh, tweet at me at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can also tweet at Ryan at is it TRG wow. underscore Ryan Reardon. All right. So thank you all for joining me, and I will talk to you soon.